Um, it is the 9th of January, 2021. And it's um, just an incredible, incredible uh, feeling to know that we're, we're here together again and that we're, we're going to study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous today. What we are studying today is chapter five, how it works, and we're getting ready to close out the chapter. But as is my want, as is my habit, let's review just a little bit before we go to today. And just for those keeping score at home, when we get to today's reading, we're going to start on page 69 whatever our ideal turns out to be. I'll give you that again if you didn't quite catch that. But what we want to do for the first little while here is just review what we have and what, or not what we have, what we've done over the past few weeks that we have been cracking open how it works. How it works is steps three and four, the most misunderstood steps in the OA program and dare I say the AA program, although maybe I shouldn't because I'm, I'm not in that, but dare I, I'm confident to say they are the most misunderstood steps. And how are they misunderstood? They are misunderstood because so many of us have such a tendency to, in our zeal to overcomplicate things, build them into something that they are indeed not. And let's take a look just in review of the chapter and let's take a look at some of the ways people overblow this. We talk about in the beginning of the chapter on page 58 that the concept of honesty is critical in our development as, as recovered people. And when we talk about honesty, if the question were posed, what is it that we need to be honest about? The obvious answer is everything. And yes, that's true. We have to be cash register honest, and we have to be honest about where we've been and what we've done or whatever it is that we deal with in life, we have to be honest about it. But the main focus of this honesty, the main idea here is so that we will be honest about what we have been talking about in the book during the previous chapters. The doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution. More about alcoholism are all step one. We use these chapters to zero in on the fact that we have a disease. What does a disease mean? It means we are set apart from the norm. If everybody had diabetes, if everybody was diabetic, then it would be a normal condition of humanity. But because only a certain group of people have diabetes, they are considered to be at illness or disease, which simply means separated from the normal. And we look at these chapters and we have to ask ourselves a question. Based on the information in these chapters, the description of the mental twist, the search for the effect, the search for this effect means that I'm looking for a way to feel better right now. The world looked at me and wondered, why is he eating like this? And I looked at the world and asked myself, why aren't, how is it that they're not eating like this? 
because the food was doing something for me and I assumed that it was doing it for them. And I didn't find out till decades later that only we feel this effect, that we eat because the food is giving me the effect. Does microwaved broccoli give me the effect? No, no, no. A Big Mac does, a French fry does, a Chips Ahoy does, or anything with sugar, fat, flour, anything fried is going to jazz my brain and it is going to give me a sense of ease and comfort. And it is going to quiet the storm. It's going to quiet down the fear, the happiness, the anger, the jealousy, the lust. It's going to quiet me down. And for about nine seconds, for about nine seconds, I'm going to feel fantastic. There's no feeling like that in the world. There is something about a milk dud that just makes the world a very beautiful place. But only for about nine seconds. And then what happens, and my brain can't remember this because of the mental blank spot, for about nine seconds, everything is okay. But about 10 seconds in, the horror, the remorse, the shame, the guilt, the fear, the murderous rage that I have both at myself and God are upon me, but by then it's too late. I know I'm destroying myself. Dr. Silkworth says, although we admit it is injurious, we cannot tell the true from the false. So before I ate the first Chips Ahoy cookie, before I ate the first Kit Kat bar, I should have been thinking, my, 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 this stuff has ruined my life. Why in the world would I go near it again? but I can't remember the ravages of what the food has done to me. I can only zero in on what the food will do for me. But once I trigger that physical allergy, that actual physical craving for more of the same, I am off to the races and it's tonight we ride. And when I say to myself, tonight we ride, that means I'm gonna eat my freaking head off. So we have a disease where I have a physical allergy and I have a twist of the mind aided and abetted by the mental blank spot, the built-in forgetter. Now, if that is the case, chapter four or step two tells me that only a spiritual experience, which I've never had, I've had a spiritual awakening what is the difference between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening? A spiritual experience is sudden and profound, and it happens right now. It's like what Bill Wilson describes in his story. He describes that he saw the white light coming into the room. He saw God coming into the room and he asked Dr. Silkworth if he had gone crazy. And Dr. Silkworth said, well, you, whatever it is, you better hang on to it because anything is better than what you had. And on page 14 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, the guy over here, 
he describes his spiritual experience. I never had that. What I had was a spiritual awakening, slow in developing over time, slow through the educational variety. And today, I can honestly say to you, in front of all 149 of you, thank you for attending, I appreciate that, um, that I am a recovered compulsive overeater with over 22 years of abstinence. And I have been released from the bondage of this happily. And I'm grateful to God, giving credit where credit is due, as my friend Irini says in New York. So we have steps one and two behind us. And now it was time to write the chapter, how it works. And in this chapter, we're looking at this concept of honesty. And then we look at the steps and we look at the character defect of selfishness. And when we talk about selfishness, please remember that the concept of selfishness means something a little different in 1939 than it does today. In today's lingo, we would assume that let's just say all 152 people of us, we were stranded on an island and something came out of the sky where it was like medical supplies or food or whatever money I don't know money wouldn't do us much good but it, you know something that we want something that we covet and it landed and I kept it all for myself you would say oh that Harlan he's being selfish and that's part of what they mean but when we talk about selfishness we're really talking about the script the script of what we have in our heads. And that script is something that we want others to stick to. Not only do we often think we know what's best for ourselves, but we often mistakenly think we know what is best for others. And that can be extremely dangerous, excuse me, extremely dangerous. So when we refer to selfishness, we refer to the script that we have in our heads about not only what is best for us, but what is best for other people. And that's what gets us in trouble so much of the time. And then they talk about the concept of self-seeking. What is self-seeking as opposed to selfishness? One of the most asked questions we get during our Q&As here and our Q&As on Vision for You. What is the difference? Self-seeking is the action that I take to try to get you to stick to my script. In other words, I'm not just going to sit here and hope you stick to my script. I'm going to take action to try to manipulate you into sticking to my script. And that action is the concept of self-seeking. And then we have the resentment inventory. And that's something that we never really looked at. But what I, before I move forward, before I move forward, there is a little piece of this I do want to review only because, again, I said steps three and four are the most misunderstood. So I want to clear this up, even though I have mentioned this a lot of times, it's so important that I feel it's worth mentioning again this morning. What is step three? Well, came to believe, oh, it's not came to believe, I'm sorry, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God 
as we understood him. Now let's take a look at that. Made a decision. Now a decision unfollowed by action is nothing. The famous AA story. There's three frogs on a log and one of the frogs makes a decision to jump off the log. How many frogs are on the log? And the answer is three. Because a mere decision not followed up by action will not get the frog off the log. So making a decision is what we're doing in three. We're not turning anything over to anybody in step three. We're just making a decision to do so. And what does that mean? Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And we can see the impact of Jimmy Burwell. Jimmy Burwell was an atheist and he was an early AA member and he was a good friend of Fitz Mayo. Fitz Mayo's story is in the book and Jimmy's is in the book too, a different slant. And, and Fitz Mayo's is called Our Southern Friend on page 208. And Jimmy Burwell was an atheist and he was a, he was a very um, uh, outspoken guy and he really wanted to drive this uh, message home of God as we understand him. So nobody can tell me or you or anyone what God is and what God is not, what God should be, what God shouldn't be. That's completely up to you. It's completely up to you. For me, I have two things that I know about God. And if I don't know these two things about God, I'm in trouble. Here are the two things I need to know about God. There is one, and it's not me. There is a God, and it's not me. Very important. But let's take a look on page 63 of this third step prayer. And the third step prayer, I hope, will be further illuminated by the work that we've done, not only in the past, but the work that we're going to do this morning. Because what I'd like to do is point out what we're looking at here so that maybe if you need to, you can use words or ideas that are more palatable to you, and then we can move forward more quickly. A lot of people get hung up in some of the language, or a lot of people get hung up in the male-oriented uh, language of the book or so on. But let's take a look on page 63. It says, we were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him. Again, Jimmy Burwell. God, I offer myself to thee. In other words, I'm offering myself to you. And when we turn our will and our life over to God, what are we turning over? What does that mean? What does will and life mean? Your will is your thinking. I have a will, and in that will, I have some directives. And my friend who lives here in Arizona, he's going to be in charge of the disbursement of whatever assets I've accumulated over the years. And some of those assets will go to Overeaters Anonymous. Some of those assets will go to A Vision for You, which is a part of Overeaters Anonymous. It's not separate from. And some of those assets will go to him. And some of those assets will go to various other people. I have 
uh, a first edition big book, first edition, first printing big book, which is something that's very, very precious. It's, it's worth a lot of money and it's, it's, it's an amazing treasure. And I want that to go to someone who's been very, very special in my life. So there's an arrangement in there made so that this person in Los Angeles will get that book and have that book. I also have a second edition first printing, second edition first printing, and that will go to this person as well. So I want those to go to him. He's been a very instrumental part of my life. But that's my will. What is my will? It is my thinking at that time. That's all it is. We don't want to overcomplicate it. My will is my thinking and my life is my action. What do you know of me? What do you know of Harlan Grabowski? All you know of me is what I do. I might be thinking I want to be a serial killer or something or whatever, but what I do will govern what you think of me. But the bottom line is my will is my thinking and my life is my action. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. In other words, God, take my life and help me serve you to the best of my ability. Relieve me of the bondage of self. What does that mean? It means relieve me of my defects of character. What are the manifestations of self? The manifestations of self are fear, dishonesty, resentment, and selfishness. Selfish, dishonest, resentful, and fearful. Those are the manifestations of self, the character defects. So in other words, relieve me of the bondage of my character defects. That's what we're asking God to do. Please relieve me of these defects that I may better do thy will. In other words, so that I can be of maximum service to you. Take away my difficulties. Difficulties is not, does not mean, well, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to win the Powerball lottery and I'll never have to worry about money. And my kids are all going to be Harvard or Yale lawyers or doctors or whatever they're going to, it does, that's not what it means. Difficulties is another word for the manifestation of self. What are my difficulties? Uh, fear, uh, excuse me, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Those are my difficulties. So twice we're asking God to relieve me of these defects of character that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. In other words, it's the same thought of what manifests on page 77 of the big book of AA, where, God said, where it says in the book, my real purpose, my main purpose, is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. And that's what we're talking about here. That's really what we are talking about. We're asking God to please remove my defects. They won't be gone permanently. They'll be gone, excuse me, temporarily. We have to keep working at this. Recovery is not a destination. It's a journey. Boy, that was a good one. I'm going to say that again. I stole that from Clancy Imaslin. Recovery is not a destination. 
it's a journey and we keep going. We have a progressive illness. Our attempts at recovery must be progressive as well. And this is part of it. We have to keep doing more and more and more and more. And then we looked at step four. Very, very simple. It doesn't have to be this big Megillah. It doesn't have to be this big involved thing. And you need months and years and weeks. You have to call in NASA uh, uh, aerospace experts. And you have to call in philosophers. And you have to call in people from all over the world to help you with it. Who or what do you resent? Column one. Who or what do you resent? You know, you know the answer to this. This is simple. This is no big deal. Two, three hours, you should be done with step four. Who or what do you resent? Okay. Why, why do you resent them? You don't need any help with that. You know why you resent them. You know what they did to you, those jerks. But the bottom line is, that's the first two columns. Now in the second column, why do you, why you resent them? 19 words or less, please. I've had people in the past, they want to go on and on and on about why they resent their mother-in-law and why they resent their wife's sister and why they resent their wife's cat. It's not necessary. 19 words or less, please. Third column, what basic instinct or instincts of life are involved. It's either the social, the security, or the sex. And we've gone over that. And if you need edification on that, I suggest you listen to last week's or the week before's uh, tape on this, or Joe and Charlie do a masterful job of explaining the basic instincts of life. They do a wonderful job. I couldn't hold a candle to those guys. May they rest in peace. And the fourth column, very simple, is what did you do to bring this resentment about? And what character defects within you are brought to the surface? I, I think I've said this last week. I listened, uh, one of the last fifth steps that I listened at the coffee plantation in Scottsdale before Corona really hit, I listened to a man's uh, fifth step and he had his mother-in-law's defects of character and his mother-in-law's resentments and his mother-in-law's failings to a science. I said, this is really great practice, but it's not your fourth step. It's her fourth step as you see it. And he was flabbergasted because he was just absolutely sure that if his mother-in-law would have died in an automobile accident 20 years before, all of his problems would have disappeared. And when I pointed that out to him, even he had a laugh, even he had a smile. He goes, yeah, I guess you're right. So I sent him back and then we did the fifth step that was his fifth step, not someone else's. So in, in review, fourth step resentment section, who or what do you resent? Why do you resent them? What basic instinct or instincts are involved? What did you do to bring it about? And what character defects were brought to the surface? Now, we've covered this before. I'm going to cover it again, just for the sake of those people out there that are saying to themselves that may not have heard me last week or may not have heard me the week, be <coughs> week before. Some of you have some resentments out there that you had no part in. Some of you by the fact that I'm looking at 158 people on the line this morning, some of you were raped. Some of you were molested. Some of you were physically beaten. Some of you were abandoned. Some of you were smothered. Some of you were put in positions of jeopardy 
when you were a child that you had no part in. You just simply put does not apply DNA and keep going. But we have a choice to make, don't we? And here's the choice. We may not have had a part in the resentment, but is this the hill we wanna die on? Is this where it ends for us? Because resentments, fancied or real, and these are real, have the power to kill. How does a resentment kill? A resentment kills by driving you into the food in search of relief from the intenable, searing, unrelenting pain that these emotions will bring forth. And eating becomes preferable, eating becomes preferable to the pain of not eating unless it's interrupted by the working of the steps in the spiritual awakening. Eating will become preferable. As my friend in Boston says, it will become a step up from where you are. So these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away. We could not wish them away any more than we could wish away our eating disorders or wish away the fact that it's Saturday. Sunday will come soon enough and we'll be as powerless over that as we are over Saturday. And so we put down the resentment and we ask God to help us by, by forgiving and by moving on. Because this is not the hill we want to die on. This is not where, where we want it to end. And then the fear inventory. Who or what do you fear? What did they, what, what happened? What, what did they do to make you fear them? 19 words or less, please. What basic instincts are involved and what character defects, what did you do to bring the fear about? Does that sound familiar? Let me review it again. Who or what do you fear? What did they do to you to make you fear them or what happened to make you fear this? Column three, the basic instinct or instincts of life. Column four, what did you do to bring the fear about and what character defects were brought to the surface? Sexual inventory, who did you hurt? And we went over this extensively last week. You don't necessarily have to take your clothes off to harm somebody in a sexual way. You could just play upon their feelings for you to satisfy your money, to satisfy the fact that you're just lonely, to satisfy the fact that you want somebody to pay attention to you, or you want to get even with another person, or you just want to step out of your marriage or step up. You just want to flirt. You just want that attention, or you're taking it to the level of sex. But who did you harm in this way? In other words, it's, it's put up to this test. Did you harm them by using your God-given sex powers for something other than what they were intended for? Did you use your God-given sex powers for something other than what they were intended for? Very important. Now we're gonna use five columns for sex. Number one, who did you hurt? What did you do to them? 19 words or less, please. 
Column three, what basic instinct or instincts are involved. It's not going to always be the sex instinct. As a matter of fact, it'll be very seldom the sex instinct. Column four, what defects of character within you caused you to harm that person? And column five, this is the only time we're going to use a fifth column. What should you have done instead? What should you have done instead does not mean write me a novel. What should you have done instead in a few sentences, not a novel? Now we have our sexual ideal. It's not, I want her to look like this, I want her to cook like this, this, that's not what we're talking about. What is it that I'm gonna bring into this relationship that I think will help it based on what I've learned from the past? And I talked about the fact that I was in a sexless marriage. And I would never want that again. I'm, it doesn't have to be the last days of Caligula. It doesn't have to be a porno set. But I, I would like some physical contact. You know, I think that that's much healthier. I also married the first girl that came along. And there really were some very, very loud warning signs. Danger, danger, danger. Houston, we have a problem that said, maybe we shouldn't do this. And I not only ignored them, I spit on them because I finally caught a fish. I wasn't going to throw it back. I didn't go on my first date with a girl till I was 35 years of age. And so I was not about to throw out this girl that wanted to marry me. There was no way that I was going to do that. And so we got married and it was, it was not great. It, there were good parts to it. There were wonderful parts of it, wonderful aspects to it. But then she divorced me and she fell in love with somebody else before we were divorced. And she was having an affair with him while we were still married and she owned up to it and so on. And so I've been divorced now almost 11 years. But it has been one of the most painful, gut-wrenching things I've ever gone through in my life. Being rejected in that way, uh, also by other females rejected in that way, is extremely painful. But what is it that I'm going to bring in? I want to bring in a recovered adult. Because in my marriage, I was scared to death of her. I brought in a child rather than an adult. And I shivered in the corner you know, figuratively because I was scared to death of her. I let her make every decision, whatever she said. If she said the sky was purple, I'd say, yes, I see it's purple. That's wonderful. Whatever decision that she made, I went along with to the best of my ability. And I got lost in the shuffle in this marriage. And I became the son. And I got the mommy that I always wanted. But I didn't get the wife that I always wanted. But I did get my mommy. Because I didn't have a mommy that could take care of me. But my ex-wife did take care of me for a while. And then she stopped. And that was not a good situation. So these are some, but not all of the things that we bring into this, the sexual ideal. Now let's go to page 69. And it's at the bottom of the page. This is where we stopped last week. It says, whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. In other words, what that's going to suggest is that a sexual ideal is not going to be a destination. It's going to be a journey. And that means we have to keep working at it. Nothing in this program is going to be one and done. 
everything in this program is an ongoing process. Everything in this program is a work in progress. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. And that's very important that you are working with a recovered, knowledgeable sponsor. Do not go out by yourself on your own making these amends. We're not on the ninth step yet. We'll be there soon, but we're not there yet. You must, and I can't stress this enough, be working with a recovered sponsor, someone that you can bounce this off of. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. A lot of people out there don't want the right answer. They just want to bury their head in the sand not make these amends, not face their past, not face their feelings. And this is where relapse lives. This is one of the houses that relapse lives in, is the avoidance of these amends. Remember the four uh, impediments to God. Remember that Sam Shoemaker teaches us, taught the boys, that there were four impediments to God. What's an impediment? An impediment is something which slows or stops progress. It slows or stops progress. And what are those things again? A resentment that you will not let go of, step four. If you're unwilling to, make an, uh, to let go of a resentment, you're probably not going to recover. I know that sounds harsh. And I know that in the back of some of the minds here, you're thinking, no, I'm okay, I'm abstinent. Even though I still resent my husband or I resent his mother or his sister or whatever, or his cat, I, I'm okay, I'm, I'm not eating yet, yet. So a resentment that you will not let go of is step four. A secret that you will not tell, step five. A vicarious thrill. What's a vicarious thrill? A vicarious thrill apparently is spinning when I talk. That's a vicarious thrill, I would assume, apparently after this. But anyway, a vicarious thrill is lying, cheating, gossiping, manipulating, silence. All these various things are... are the vicarious thrills that you will not let go of. And then last but not least, a restitution that you will not make. So if you will not make a certain restitution that you owe, you are not probably going to recover. So these are things you need to look at. Not all, not all restitutions can be made. Not all restitutions should be made. That's why again, <laughs> Don't go off half cocked, have a sponsor, have somebody that is uninvolved, ob objective and knowledgeable that you can bounce these things off of or you will go about making more problems than you ever did in the first place. Bottom of 69, God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with persons is often desirable. Counsel with persons is not only desirable, highly, highly recommended. It is very important because a solitary self-appraisal proved insufficient. 
I need that input from somebody else. These ideas that I have rolling around in my brain, in my head, look very differently than when I take them out and show those ideas the light of day. You give me enough time, I can justify anything in my mind up to and including eating an entire Thanksgiving dinner for 40 people by myself. It's just seven turkeys is four ounces because you know it's been cooked a long time. So eight turkeys, seven turkeys, that's four ounces, right? That, that's gotta be just four ounces. In my mind, I will convince myself of that. But we let God be the final judge. And how do you let God be the final judge? By spitting it out. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. In other words, the extremes is what we're trying to avoid. Don't be too extreme. Don't be too extreme. Now, I'm not saying if you're married, go cheat on your spouse. I'm not saying that. You know what I've told you in the past, and that is, I believe that for me, this has nothing to do with you. This is me. I, Harlan G, cannot be working the steps successfully while I'm breaking the Ten Commandments. I'm not talking about that, but we want to avoid hysterical thinking or hysterical advice. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Ooh, you're human. Things are going to happen. Does that mean we are going to get drunk? Some people tell us so. But this is only a half truth. It depends on us and on our motives. It's one thing to make a mistake. It's another thing to keep repeating that mistake, even when you know it's a mistake. It's okay to make a mistake. They have a name for people that make mistakes. You know what they're called? They're called human beings. That's what they're called, human beings. And as human beings, we are going to make mistakes. I say stupid things every day. I do stupid things every day. I make mistakes. I, I talk too much. I do this. I do that. I do this all the time. I make mistakes. But my motivation isn't to keep repeating them. So I try to learn from them and I try not to make them again. A, a smart man learns from his own mistakes and a wise man can learn from the mistakes of others. I try to be the wise man. I look at what's going on around me and I try not to step into the same pitfalls, but sometimes I do because I'm human. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we will have learned our lesson. And that means if we are sorry for what we have done and have an honest desire to let God take us to better things. Did it feel good to throw one past your spouse? Did it feel really good to throw one past your boyfriend or your girlfriend and cheat on them with somebody else? Did that feel good? Was that exciting? Well, that's one thing. But if we are sorry for what we've done and have an honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we will have learned our lesson. But if I keep doing it again and again and again, then that's not an amends. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink because you have to know that your motivation, your direction is going to the disease. 
Now, let me reemphasize something that I've said in here many, many times. And if you've ever heard me in a live retreat or a live convention, I will talk about this. Every single thing that I do today, every single thing I say today, everywhere I go today, I'm either going toward God or I'm going toward the food. And there's no middle ground. I remember a number of years ago, <clears throat> I was on my way to Mobile, Alabama, and I got stuck in the Houston airport for 14 hours. It was one of the worst days of my life. I got stuck in the Houston airport for 14 hours, and OA showed up for me big time. I kept making 10-step calls. And one called the other. And I kept getting a barrage of calls from OA people. I had to eat two meals in the Houston airport. Airport food, yucky, poo-poo, yuck. But I had to eat two meals in the Houston airport. And I kept talking on the phone through 99% of that time with OA people. And I got through. And I didn't scream at anyone. I didn't swear at the counter people. I didn't yell. I didn't scream. Everything was okay. And that's not me. I want what I want and I want it now. That's who I am. I want it now. And that didn't happen. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. And the only reason I didn't yell and scream and do all that stuff is because I got centered in God's will because I reached out to other people and they in turn reached out to me. And I was able to weather the storm, not because of my wonderful personality, not because of my wonderful demeanor. I was able to weather the storm without the aid of Milky Ways, without the aid of M&Ms, without the aid of anything like that, because of the program of Overeaters Anonymous. And that's the only reason I was able to do that. To sum up about sex, I'm on page 70. I'm in the middle of the page, 70, fourth edition. We earnestly pray for the right ideal when I, again, just to reiterate, when we say we're praying for the right ideal, guys or girls, that doesn't mean we're thinking about what the other person should look like or do or not do. We're looking at ourselves only, only for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. We just want to do the right thing. A friend of mine, <clears throat> who lives in California, he was working at a place and he bought this gal lunch every day for about a year or two. And he kept buying her lunch and buying her lunch and taking her out to lunch. She used him and he used her. You know, there's a song, she used me and I used her and neither one cared. But the bottom line is in looking at this, he had to come to the conclusion that she wasn't a witch for letting him do it. He was at fault by encouraging her to do it. He was in, at fault because he encouraged her to keep doing that. Why? 
He desperately wanted her company. He desperately wanted to see if he could turn it into something else. And this is the kind of thing we're looking at when we talk about sanity. What step do we use where sanity is mentioned? Step two. And many, many times we've talked in this forum about step two, that the wording is not came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence. The wording is not came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sobriety. The wording is came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And sanity is much more open-ended, much more high ceiling, much more diverse, much more inclusive of life than just sobriety or abstinence. So the word sanity opens up everything in God's universe. And sane people don't act like this. Sane people don't treat others like this. Sane people don't treat themselves like this. And for the strength to do the right thing, if sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. If you think you're going to go crazy, get somebody else to work with. Get somebody else and start working with them and these thoughts will dissipate. We think of their needs and work for them. In other words, get out of yourself. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge, horny condition, when to yield would mean heartache. Very, very important instruction. If you feel that you are going to harm yourself or harm someone else, go search out somebody to work with. Go search out somebody that you could make a phone call to. Get out of yourself. Get out of self. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. Don't let that word analyzed fool you. It is not an exercise in thinking. The analyzing of it comes from the process of putting it down in the four columns. It doesn't need to be pondered or perseverated over. It doesn't need to be studied. A lot of people take that word analyzed and they just go to town with it and they want to sit and ruminate and think and think and think about their resentments. You've already analyzed them by writing them down in the four column resentment inventory. We have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. Now that's a warning. We have, be, we, have we have begun to comprehend. It doesn't say we comprehend. We have begun to comprehend. And that process of seeing the horrible, horrible destructive pr properties of a resentment are ongoing. Not only do I see it from me, I see their destructiveness in the people that I sponsor and the people that I talk to. So it's an ongoing thing. Notice that the word begun is the key word there. We have begun to comprehend their futility. Futility means with no purpose and their fatality, they will kill you. Again, we have been hurt. Nobody comes in here on a roll. Nobody I know got up in the morning and said, man, my life is fantastic. Man, oh man, is my life great. 
I think I'll go join Overeaters Anonymous. I have yet to meet that person. In William James's book, The Variety of Religious Experiences, written in 1902, he did a series of lectures at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. He was a psychologist and the people at these lectures were also psychologists. And he presented things there that came to be a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And in the book, what he did was he wrote down people's experience with catastrophe. In other words, what they were like, what happened, they found God, and what they are like now. What were they like, what happened, and what they're like now. So William James is the blueprint for all of the stories that we have in the back of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was the source of all that. What happened, what we're like now, excuse me, what happened, I'm not thinking clearly today. What were we like? What happened? And what are we like now? And he talks about how people found God. Very, very important. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. Again, he doesn't say we see their terrible destructiveness. We have commenced. What does commenced mean? We have begun to see their terrible destructiveness. But he didn't want to use the word begun again, so he uses the word commenced. Because seeing the destructiveness of resentments is not an overnight affair. It's not a one and done thing. It is a lifetime process. You will see that destructiveness in me, I will see it in you, and we will grow together. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. Some amends cannot be made. I came into this program, I don't want to go off on a ninth step tangent here, we don't have the time. But my mother died when I was 22. My father died when I was 24. And it was after his death that I came into program. And I treated my mother horribly. My mother was mentally ill. She had three distinct personalities. She was a three-year-old, screaming, raving lunatic, or a pretty together person. You never knew what you were going to get or how long it was going to last. And I treated her abominably. I, I took everything out on her. I blamed her for everything. And I love my mom. And I have a good relationship with her now. I work on my relationship with her every day. I work on my relationship with her. I want to make her proud of me to the best of my ability. In some areas, I have failed miserably, but in other areas, I have been very, very successful. And I think that my mom and dad in many, many ways, would be very proud of who I am today. And I conduct myself as above board as I possibly can as a human being. And I try not to get into other people's business to the best of my ability. And I, be, I am as honest and forthright as I can be with everybody that I know. I do the best that I can. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We cannot will away defects. We cannot will away resentments and fears and harms done others. But God can make it so that it changes in its perspective. 
We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. He can if you want him to and you work at it. You have to work at it. If you have already made a decision, step three, step three is a beginning and a decision and an inventory of your grosser handicaps. Step four, you have made a good beginning. Now, one of the mistakes I said we were going to look at this fourth step. One of the mistakes that people make over and over again is they see this fourth step. And I think program really aids and abets this mistake as an end result. And that after you're done with the fourth step, not only should you be cured, but you should never have another problem again as long as you live. And there's nothing in this book that says that. There's nothing in this book that suggests that. I've been in this program a long time. I have problems. I wish I wasn't single. I wish I was married. I wish that every morning I woke up, I wasn't alone. Every night that I go to sleep, I wasn't alone. And I wish that during the day there was somebody here. I wish that with all my heart. I wish I had more money. I wish I could retire. I wish the Cubs would win the World Series every year. I wish the Bears would win the Super Bowl every year. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. But the bottom line is, is that I have a life today that's worth living. I have friends. I have purpose to my life. <clears throat> I never have to wonder why I was born and why I survived. My real purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. And every day that I am lucky enough to wake up, I have people in my life that contact me or I contact them that remind me of some key things I forgot overnight. Number one, I am a compulsive overeater. And that without a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I will revert back to my default mode and I will eat yet again. Despite all of the torture and all of the pain and all of the horror and the nightmare of the food, the loneliness, the degradation, the pitiful and, 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 and incomprehensible demoralization, I will go back to buying M&Ms 48 bags at a time like I did. I will go back to eating pizza and I will go back to eating crap that devastated me, emasculated me and dragged my life into hell. And that I became someone who lied when the truth would have been better. And that I lived in size 70 and 80 inch pants and more. And that I had towels shoved between layers of flab. That I was emasculated by the time I was 12 years old by this disease. Emasculated physically and emasculated emotionally. And that every dream I've ever dreamed went up in smoke because that my dreams were not pursued with the verve of pizza. My dreams were not pursued with the energy of candy. I was more at home alone, eating behind a dumpster in the dead of winter 
throwing paper bags at a closed dumpster and driving away and praying to God that no one saw me. I'm tired of not being able to pay my bills. I'm tired of running from the landlord. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of being ashamed. I'm tired of being alone. I'm tired of the food, and yet I will seek it again. That's the disease. That's the effect that Dr. Silkworth talks about, that many will pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. This is a step, not the end destination of a journey. It's a good beginning. We must keep going. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. And what are the chunks of truth that I had to swallow about myself? That I'm more dishonest than I originally thought. That I'm more scared of life and I have anxieties. I have social anxieties and I fear people more than I thought I did. I thought I was more of a people person. I'm scared. I'm scared of performance. I'm scared of a lot of things that I didn't even know I was afraid of. And I'm very angry at my base core. I'm angry at my parents for not being rich young Americans. I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. I got Max and Virginia Grabowski, something very, very, very different. I wanted my dad to be a big industrialist that would leave me this big successful business and I could put my feet up and just sit back in the chair and be rich and have secretaries come in and give me coffee or whatever. I don't know. I wanted something very, very different. I wanted to be the first baseman of the Cubs, but I wouldn't work toward it. I found out that I'm a sicker person than I originally believed I was. I found out that people affect me greatly. I found out along the way that without God's help, I had no chance. The one entity that I did not want to turn to because I was convinced that this God that you guys talk about did not like me because if God liked me, I would have been rich. I would have been thin. I would have been attractive. Girls would have wanted to kiss me and men would have wanted to be my friend and I would have been the bell of the ball or whatever. And that didn't happen. I found something else out because my ego in its tempestuous it's, it's tempestuous appetite to make me better than you or worse than you, but not the same as you. I found out something that was the most shocking thing I found out about myself in the course of this inventory. And that is, I'm just another bozo on the bus. And that was probably the most humbling thing I discovered in my path, that I was just another bozo on the bus. No better, no worse, no different than you. And how did I learn that? Did I learn that in one fell swoop? No, I learned it 
by doing my fourth step. And we're going to be talking about step five when we reconvene in two weeks. But I found out because I've listened to so many fifth steps that I can't even remember them all. And thank God I did. Because in listening to those fifth steps, I found out something that these resentments, these fears, these sexual harms done others. And by the way, I was a virgin when I came in. I had never had sex with anybody. So I had to look at my relationships and see where were they manipulative? Where was I hurting people? But what I found out was I'm just another bozo on the bus. And then by doing hundreds of fifth steps, yes, hundreds of them, I found out that the things that were bothering me were not unique unto me. That these thoughts I had, these behaviors that I had, that I believed were secret unto me, were not unique at all. And that if you scratch the surface of any one of us, no matter what they look like, no matter where they come from, whether it's Dublin, Georgia, or Dublin, Ireland, whether it's Dublin, Ohio, or whatever, whether it's whatever. It doesn't matter where the person comes from, whether they're male, whether they're female, it doesn't mean one thing. Even though we may not look the same, we are the same. We are all scared, fragile human beings. And I had to learn to stop judging my broken insides with your seemingly together outsides. And I learned that in comparing people to me, I would always come out on the short end, especially when I started spinning when I was talking, which I don't know where that came from, but apparently that's the new shtick now. I don't know. But anyway, I learned that we are all human beings. Some of us are a little different in what we like or don't like, and some of us are a little different because we're either male or female or we're, we're Catholic or we're Jewish or we're Protestant or we're Muslim or we're whatever we are, Native American, whatever it is we are, there are going to be some differences. But at the core center of the Tootsie Roll, the, the, the Tootsie Pop, he has a thing. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Okay. Am I too old? For, I, I, I'm, I'm see. Okay. At the core center where that Tootsie Roll is there, and by the way, Tootsie Roll is in Chicago on South Ashland Avenue. But anyway, at the center of it is just another compulsive overeater. We're just bozos on the bus. We're bozos on the bus. And I'm so vulnerable to being hurt that I often closed myself off and I became scared to death especially of females, the more attractive I found you, the more I wanted to get away from you because I knew you were going to hurt me. And that has been the case many, many, many times. And I found that the more attractive I found you, the more nuts I got. <sighs> but there was nothing more attractive than that Kit Kat bar. There was nothing more attractive than that ice cream, whatever it was. And this is the bottom line of what I found out. Pay attention to this. If you've been sleeping and you haven't been paying attention, pay attention to this part of it because it's the most important thing I'm ever going to say to you. 
that in order for me to recover, I must have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps that I could no more wish things away like resentments and fears and all this other stuff than I could wish myself to be a thoroughbred horse. It doesn't matter what I'm addicted to. It doesn't matter whether I'm anorexic or bulimic or morbidly obese. But let's close with the bottom of page.